0: Hey, adventurers. Before we get started, just wanted to share a few things. First and foremost, if you're listening to this episode the day it goes live, keep your eyes open for the premiere of Boards and Brews. This is a podcast by William Brown, more commonly known as the Hungry Gamer. Tonight at six o'clock Eastern, Boards and Brews premieres with a live chat, and I had the pleasure of joining Will for the episode. The link to the live chat's in the show notes, and if you miss it, make sure you check out Boards and Brews. Speaking of The Hungry Gamer, next week we have a side quest episode about some of our favorite games from PAX, and Will is joining the King and I to deliver a whopping nine games that we're fired up for. Alright, alright, let's get on with it! Welcome, adventurer, to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Hey, welcome adventurers to episode 41 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We come to you every other Thursday. My name's Patrick.
1: Hey, King Scott here.
0: And Scott, today we've got another chock-full episode. We've got some excellent recent adventures. We're going to be reviewing a game called Factory 42 from Dragon Dawn Productions. We've got our look back at tapestry. Josh is going to join us for some Lost Loot. We've got a discussion and adventures on
1: the horizon. This is going to be a good one. What you been up to, Scott? It it is going to be a good one. I I look at it and I think, how are we going to do anything like we did on the last episode? But we (laughs) always figure out some way to get new things to talk about. And that's just fantastic things have been going good uh just been very busy with traveling uh which we'll get into a little bit more here whenever we go over the review but things have been going quite well getting ready for the holiday season how have things been going with you
0: not bad, not bad. Busy. I'm all set. We're uh, a little peek behind the curtain. We're recording before packs. So, um, <laughs> my friend Nikki, I, I was trying to figure out how to get there and back because my wife's going to be on the road. So I'm like, oh, geez, what am I going to do now? I'm terrified of flying, but I'll do it in a worst case scenario. But it's like it's just Pittsburgh to Philly. It's five hours. She's talking about, well, I'll get you a flight because she's going to be on the road. Well. My friend Nikki comes to the rescue. She's like, hey, why don't you just ride with us? We're going to leave Thursday, and then we're going to we're gonna head out to Philadelphia Thursday. We're going to come back uh, Sunday night. So <laughs> we, we're going to all pile in the war wagon and head out to PAX here in a couple days. So super excited for that. And hey, adventurers, if you happen to see us... No, granted, we don't have like a booth or anything like that. There's not a whole, what... Hullabaloo? I don't know what the word is, but yeah, that works. We're going to have on tiny little emblem level up hats. So if you see a couple guys in gray level up hats, yeah, say hi, introduce yourself. We're looking forward to uh, to meeting some of the adventurers while we're there. Do you see tapestries on BGA?
1: I did. And I just picked that game up. Oh, so man. I've got the physical copy. Now I can play it on BGA all anytime I want to now.
0: Dude, BGA has been stepping up their game. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, they in beta, they have Blood Rage, Railways of the World, Gaia Project, Nippon, Yokohama. They have some big titles there. So adventures, if you don't know, get on board Game Arena. It's not, I want to say a year is like 20 bucks. You have access Mm -hmm. to all these games, even if you don't. Even if you don't become like a member, you can still join a table that a subscriber had, a premium member, that's the word. If you're not a premium member, you might not have access to some of the biggest titles, but you can still play them with other people who are premium that set up the table. And premium's like, I don't quote me, I'm not going to look it up, but it's like 20 bucks. I think for us, this what over summer or back in spring, it was 20 bucks for a whole year.
1: It definitely was not very expensive I and mean, it was completely worth it. And the number of games that I've had a chance to give a try that I always see them on the shelves and I'm like, "Mm, I want to give that a try. But I don't feel like forking out 75 bucks for it. It's a great way to learn it before you actually buy the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because there's nothing worse than whenever you get a game and you play it once and you're like, this one just isn't for me. So uh, this was something back when there was a thing whenever they said Asmodee bought BGA. That's right. Not knowing the library that Asmodee has now, my God, they're doing everything on this. I mean, it really makes you wonder how this is comparing to Steam now, because Steam used to be the big place where you would get a lot of the board game implementations on mm-hmm. your computer, and now then this is just steamrolling right over that. I see what you did there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Six days
0: left to back Mr. Torg's Arena of Badassery, the Borderlands game that we had the side quest on last week. Big hit. That thing is up and over a million bucks. Over a million Uh, bucks raised. That's absurd.
1: Yeah, and I know talking with them, I mean, they were so excited about it. We were excited about it. And all those backers are excited about it. There's no question how and why this became such a success.
0: Listeners, I will say off the air, John gave us some... Some little behind the scenes things we're not allowed to say. We're not allowed to say what's mm. coming up. Stop, no, we're not allowed. I wanna say, but
1: there's some stuff that could be coming out that's fans of this IP. Oh man, it's gonna blow your head off. What's this that I see about the world series of board gaming? Yeah, they're gonna be having this in Las Vegas. And I just thought it would be kind of fun here taking a look at the games that they had. Seven Wonders, Acquire. Azul, Blood Rage, Brass Birmingham, huh, Carcassonne, Catan, Dominant Species Marine, Dune Imperium, hey. yeah, Gaia Project, Great Western Trail, Raw, Splendor, Terraforming Mars, Ticket to Ride, and Wingspan. Now, these are all ones, like, you almost think whenever you hear a World Series of board gaming, they're going to go back to, like, the tried and true titles that everyone knows. But there's some new stuff out there. There's some really thinky type of games that are in there that really make this quite interesting. So my question to you is, what one, if you were to enter this, what one would you try and play? Well, I heard that
0: it's a different game each round. Now, I don't know the setup, like you got to win three rounds or whatever, but, but I do know that if you move on from your first game, Say that I sit down to play, a, I don't know, Wingspan, and I win. My next game, my next tournament game cannot be Wingspan. Like, you're not going to play the same thing twice. I would go, oh, I'd love to say Brass, but I'd get my butt handed to me. I would go, <laughs> this is funny because we just had that discussion a couple episodes ago about games that we felt like we could win a tournament at, and through the ages is not on that list. You said, I'm going to go Terraforming Mars. There are plenty of gamers that are way better than me, but I think if I was going to have a snowball's chance in hell, it would be at Terraforming <laughs> Mars. What about you? What would you What would you play?
1: Looking at all these, I mean, for one, I would love to play in an Acquire competition. That'd be fun. Um, that is just such a neat and unique game. But of all these, I think my one that I have the best chance in would have to be, I want to say Dune Imperium, but I think it'd be Seven Wonders. I just love being able to figure out what type of strategy I want to go with and then go whole hog in that one strategy and see how it works out. So this just sounds like it'd be really quite interesting, quite exciting to do. Maybe we'll go, maybe we won't. Hey, who knows? It's it's not until 2022, so we'll see what happens.
0: Okay, it says the winner gets the World Series of Board Games title bracelet, valued at over $3,000 plus 25k in cash, $25,000, which okay, that's cool, but man, that bracelet would be sweet. And I uh, also see how it works. You have 16 qualifying ring events are held over the span of 4 days, and then the winners of those compete in four semifinal games. And then finally oh. the four finalists compete for the title. So if you won it seven wonders, what would be your pick for the next game? If I I don't know if it's dictated like what if the the four people that make it to the finals want to play four different games? I'm I'm sure it's random. The answer yeah. is you got to know how to play all these games and play them well. But what would be your uh, your go to after seven wonders?
1: I would have to say I'd have to go with Dune Imperium on that. Yeah, I, That I would could. definitely be the one I feel strongest with. Blood Rage, there would be so much hate drafting on that. Just taking those Loki cards and just sitting there and grinning through the whole game.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But uh, what would you be playing after you played a uh, oh. game of Terraforming Mars?
0: Oh, that's rough looking at this. You know what? I think part of dissecting this, like I know that it wouldn't be... Um I know that it wouldn't be something that has a lot of player interaction. Like, I would want to win or lose based on my own decision. So something like Catan, I think, would be out. Because, Mm. yeah, you can pick the good spots. But, like, if two people at the table are being really nice and trading with each other, and they're just kind of blocking you out, not that it would even be intentional. But if that's the case, like, the player influence is a thing. Oh, maybe Gaia Project. Gaia Project's meaty. Uh, It's a skill-based... Ah, but see, that's, there's people that play these games. Like, that's the problem. No matter what you pick, there's someone out there that has played it a billion times. That's why I went with Terraforming Mars. There are there's folks that have played Splendor 10,000 times. And <laughs> no matter how much you think you're good at it, they're going to trounce you. Oh, mm-hmm. that's uh, that's cool. That's cool. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled, and uh, I look forward to, to hearing about what happens. And you know what? If you want to go to Vegas, uh, <laughs> if you'll pay my way. I'll go with you. (laughs) But again, I'm terrified of flying, so we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Exactly. Well, Scott, what do you say we fly into some recent adventures? I'm going to give you the floor because you got two to my one. Tell me a little bit about Die Hard.
1: Probably, without question, one of the greatest Christmas movies ever. Yes, I threw that out there. Timely pick. Yes. (laughs) But Die Hard, the Nakatomi heist. It was released in 2019. Designed by Sean Fletcher and Patrick Marino and published by The Op. This one lets you play Die Hard. It unfolds in three acts, and each act takes a different part of the board. And this is really kind of interesting because there's boards printed all over this foldable board. So act one, you just put out the folded board. You play on there. Act two, you unfold it once. You got more stuff to go on. Act three, you open up the whole board and play on it. So each board Hmm. shows a blueprint look at the different floors you're going to be going on. This is where you're going to place John McClane and a number of different thieves. There will also be objectives that you're trying to accomplish for either the thieves or John McClane. But the thieves are also trying to open the safe, as they showed in there having the seven locks to unlock and waiting for the FBI to cut the power so they can get in. One person can play as John McClane. You're trying to save the people at Nakatomi Plaza. In order to do this, you have action cards to play. Each card has different actions based upon what act you're playing on. They'll allow you to move around, sneak, or attack. Now, the thieves will play three cards. Now, this is kind of an interesting little mechanic here. The three cards that they will play will allow them to do actions as well as unlock the safe. Those actions with the numbers on it also correspond with the locks you need to use to open the safe. So you have to look at it, and you're not allowed to talk amongst the thieves. You can kind of look at each other, and maybe if you can read nods of your other player or something, or you have winks, Mm -hmm. you might be able to do something like that. But you want to play out cards that are going to be different that give you the most numbers and the greatest ability to unlock certain locks. So it's really a neat mechanic how they have it work. Now, the game is fun. It's especially fun for fans of the movie. I mean, there's all sorts of flavor text in there. Uh, You're trying to get the radio working. You're shooting the glass. All sorts of different things going on. Is it a great game? I can't say it's a great game. I don't see that there's a lot of replayability in this. I mean, once you play it, you kind of get a joke out of it. And it almost becomes like a fun game that you play Like it with new players. Like, oh, you like Die Hard? Let me show you this game.
0: Like you get that nostalgia playing it through once. And then after that, the the game on its own, like without the diehard skin on it, it, isn't, it didn't excite yes, you, I yes. gather.
1: But yeah, it's entertaining. And right now, I mean, a lot of places, if you're looking for it, you can find it on clearance or on sale someplace online. If you're a fan of Die Hard, I mean, dear God, I was such a fan of Die Hard whenever that came out. I had the big cardboard standout from the movie theater in my house.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. But
1: um, it all ends up with John McClane wins by defeating the thieves, and the thieves win by opening the safe or killing John McClane. So it's a fun game, and if you really enjoy the movie, oh my God, you're playing that movie through your head the whole time while you're playing this. So good time, really add to your collection. I don't know if I would say that, but if you can find it, 10 15 bucks, ah, eh, why not? Okay. Well, it sounds like they
0: got the theme down. Let me ask you a few questions, though. How long does it take to learn this game? Like, it, it can't be that complex. I saw it in Barnes & Noble. I think Target had it, so I'm sure it's not overwhelming. Tell me a little bit about the, the learning curve um, in Diver. Yeah,
1: the learning curve, it doesn't take that long. I mean, playing all three acts, you could, if you know everything, you could probably play in an hour. If you're learning it, probably about an hour and a half. The rule book is a lot bigger than it needs to be. There are a lot of examples and there are a lot of pictures. If you just had just the rules, it could be maybe five, six pages.
0: Are the three acts in the game essentially playing the same game, just the board gets bigger?
1: Uh, yes, yes. The same rules apply to each one of them. I mean, John McLean has to go around. He has to find bullets. He needs to sneak around from the thieves. The thieves have to go around, and they have to accomplish different uh, objectives as well. So it's really the same thing on all three acts. A lot of strategy in this one, or would you put it on the luck side? I would say it's definitely on the lighter side, because you're looking at it, there's nothing where you're really making a big decision where, do I want this card or this card? And if anything, that probably comes in more with the thieves. So that one there is a little more difficult for the thieves to play, but then again, they're having more people playing against the one person but like i said the one thing that is fun is the mechanic with the thieves trying to unlock the different locks for the safe that is really a unique way of doing things and trying to pick out everyone sees what numbers you need so you're trying to figure out what other people may be playing so you can play something unique to get an extra number taken off the locks
0: you're going to play it again
1: oh yeah yeah hey I actually got thrown out of rooms in college for quoting that movie while it was playing. Uh yeah, I'm I have a sickness when it comes to this movie. I know I'm well over a hundred times watching.
0: Well, that's Die Hard, the Nakatomi Heist board game. Good pick, Scott.
1: Now, we're looking at one here. Uh huh. Let me see if I can do this. It looks like it would be Gotia. But I'm guessing it's probably pronounced something more along the lines of Goetia? I've been saying Goetia. Okay, okay, I can see it. G-O-E-T-I-A,
0: Goeisha, Nine Kings of Solomon. This is a 2021 game designed by Christian Karlberg and published by Demonic Games. Goetia. Scott, Goetia is not unique in the category, ten, but this is definitely a theme of a game that is slightly less represented. Now, the theme here, you know I'm not one that goes, oh, well, that theme bothers me, or, you know, this theme I love. Some folks won't play a game because it has colonization. Okay, that's fine. You're certainly allowed to. Some folks won't play a game that incorporates politics, religion, that sort of thing. There are some themes that people don't care for, and i I'm more of a, you know what, I'll play any game. The theme is, it is what it is. The theme here is that you're attempting to conjure demons and make packs with them to score worship points in worshiping these demonic demons.
1: Wow. Now let that sink in. <laughs> yeah. No, no, wait, I'm wait, sure wait, some, wait, wait, some... wait, wait, wait. Now, there was something about Kings of Solomon at the beginning of this.
0: Okay, so minimal research led me to a works titled The Lesser Key of Solomon, which is essentially a grimoire on demonology compiled in the mid-17th century. Goetia is a practice that includes the conjuration of demons, specifically the ones summoned by Solomon. The son of David is referenced in Christianity, Judaism, and in Islam, all three of which in some fashion reference his connections to demons.
1: It sounds quite interesting. Please tell me more.
0: Okay. Well, do let that that theme sink in here because, I mean, it it comes through in the game. It's I don't want to say, oh, it's devil worshiping. You know, it's not a 1980s pitchforks against D&D sort of thing, but it's not a game that you're going to get kids or, you know, some casual gamers to be like, oh, the, you know, this is pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's an in-your-face theme. Never mind your comfort level with the theme. What's going on in the game? This is a worker placement game with a bit of resource management and a little tableau building mixed in as well. And if you're like me, you're probably excited just by hearing that. So let's go over the layout of the game and explain what's going on. So at the start, you've got a three by three grid, which has worker placement spots. Now this this grid is made up of cards and any of these spots are going to provide you some number of cubes across four colors. On three of the borders of this three-by-three three grid, you have workers that you can unlock. You start the game with just three. As your workers become unlocked and they vacate the tiles that they're on on the borders of that grid, that card that they were sitting on will flip over and it provides a new, more powerful worker placement spot. All right. Okay, so you've got your, get your nine spots in the middle, and then you've got nine on the outside, three on top, three on bottom, three on the left, and those will progressively unlock as the game goes on neat way to uh, to unlock workers right, by yes. the way to the right of the grid you have demons the nine kings of solomon in three stacks of three demons each and you can place your workers there as well but it's going to cost you some amount of resource cubes to do so so you're getting your resource cubes from the middle you're placing them to these demons off to the right to uh, to use their ability you gain attention Which are really neat little metal coins. They got like a little eyeball on the front of them. They serve as a resource, but they're also points at the end of the game. Now, once the supply of attention that's on one of these demon cards is depleted, the demon is flipped over, housing an even more powerful worker placement spot. As well as cards that can be acquired. So, you're gonna flip that demon over and you're gonna take two little cards, like those miniature, like the old fantasy flight cards, uh, from a stack of like four or five per demon. Each of these demons have their own little deck of five. You're gonna take two of those cards at random and put them face down on the demon card, Mm -hmm. okay? As you activate that now active demon, the first person to do so gets to look at the two cards and keep one. It's based on the player count. Three people, you're going to have three cards. Four people, you're going to put four cards. So it's based on player count. The cards you gain in this fashion from that demon are going to go into a personal tableau. So some of them are going to provide a steady drip of a resource. Some are going to give you a static ability. Some of them even give you a worker placement spot for you and you alone. All of them are worth victory points. Scott, I'm telling you, as you progress through this game, it starts as a very simple, I have three workers, and I'm just gaining resources. And then it turns into, how can I unlock workers on the outside of my board? And then those cards flip, and some of the the spots in the middle become obsolete. Check this out. As you unlock the demons on the right side of your grid, the three-by-three grid in the middle, rows will shift, and new cards will become available in the middle. How do we win? What triggers the end game here? Back to that three by three grid that we started with. To the left of the whole works, you place a number of packed cards, basically end game points. And when a number of them have been attained, that's the final round. And High Score will
1: win. This sounds like it has a ton of worker placement spots. Does it get a uh, little overwhelming?
0: No, I wouldn't say overwhelming. You know what happens? Uh, okay, well, there's definitely a progression in play. Your initial spots, it's it's pretty easy to determine their value. Within a round or two, they're going to be outclassed by better spots. Okay. And around later, even better. So, overwhelm, no, because some of the ones that you were using early, I don't want to say that they become obsolete, but they become less optimal. You have to have a lot of workers and be down to, you know, your fourth or fifth one before you're going to consider using one of those spots. And you factor in worker placement spots on an unlocked demon card, or on your tableau. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it's it's going to change where you're prioritizing. Basically, the game ramps up. It's a very different game at the end. Well, it's not a very different game. You're using the same rule set, the same same concepts and everything, same mechanisms. But where you're prioritizing placing your workers is very different in the end than it was in the beginning. You're never going to feel like you're getting stuck You know, in viticulture, that little space in the middle between the summer and winter Mm -hmm. where you can put your guy and just gain a coin because, ah, crap, I don't have anything to do with. That never, never happens here. There's always something to do and always something powerful to do.
1: Now, this is kind of a two-part question here I'm thinking of. What stands out more, the mechanics or the theme? And does the theme kind of put you off? Do you find kind of it bothering you at all? Well, let's start with the first part.
0: The mechanics stand out more than the theme. Okay, it's a work placement game, and we always say, "Oh, it's really hard to get themed through on work placement," and it is. You know, you can say, "Well, well, that's attention." You know, the the demon's paying attention to me, or you can say, "Okay, I get one of these coins." Which, in practice, that's how most folks are gonna play right. the game. Does the theme bother me? Not really. I I don't love the theme. I would prefer not to be summoning demons. Now, which is what we loved Eschaton bringing on the, the <laughs> end of days. And I think that the theme is great there, but that's in like a grand scheme. We'll say a, a view from above. Right. We'll yes. Say. Yes. This is more uh, you're the individual doing it. I, I don't know. It... I'll take this over gardening. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the theme, it's going to raise some eyebrows. Like if I had somebody new coming to my game day, it's going to be an odd theme explanation as I'm teaching the game to Artie from accounting.
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I think one of the things here looking at it is you can play some games that are like, yes, we're summoning demons, but it's kind of like cutesy artwork or something like that. And there are mm-hmm. little demons that come up with their look kind of chubby and have little horns on their heads. Or they can yeah. be ones with huge teeth and guts coming out of, them, like, Warhammer, like, Nurgle demons or something like that. Sure. How does the artwork and everything work in this? Is it more disturbing or is it more, like, easy to, to jump in on?
0: I think you said it with disturbing.
1: Oh. The
0: art is phenomenal. Uh-huh. I think for art bringing out a theme, games typically don't do it as well. As Goetia did. Okay. It's got a very old, like a rustic, almost an enchanted look to them. I adventurers, you gotta check out some of the pictures. Quite frankly. That's that's the best way to do it. Look at some of the pictures of some of the, the demons in the game. They're not grotesque. They're not bloody or gory. They almost look like something that you'd find in some I don't have a good way to explain it to you, Scott, if you without to be just in showing the woods your, and you. I'm sure you've pulled up a pic.
1: Yes, you're yes. You're in the go woods, ahead, go ahead. you go to a little cabin, you find this book that's covered in human flesh, and all the pages are written in blood. You'd find these pictures in that.
0: Yes, oh. yes. They did a phenomenal, phenomenal job. But I think for some, that's going to be a downside because that does remind you. <laughs> Right in your face, hey, don't forget, you're worshiping demons here. (laughs) But
1: truly, the art
0: and the components were
1: fantastic. Now, is it replayable? And are, are you looking to summon demons anytime soon in the future? Absolutely.
0: In fact, I wouldn't mind getting to review this one with you at some point. We keep on talking about games and go, oh, we should review that. The starting setup's got some variability. Where the variant shines, though, is in that that tableau that you get to build on your own. Mm-hmm. With worker placement, as with any worker placement game, the spaces on the board, everybody has access to them. And even if they unlock, you have uh, equal access to things throughout the game. But here you have that tableau of cards that you're acquiring from the demons. You can have up to four cards. And if you want a fifth, you just have to put it over top of one that you already have. Mm. You're not going to lose the points from the one that you already have. You're just going to lose the ability. Okay. Sometimes that's okay because the card might just be a point sure. gain or so be it. In a two player game, two cards are available. It comes from a stack of, uh, I think I said five earlier, I think it's six. Uh, end game point cards, the packs, uh, the packs that you uh, have, they come from a, a stack of 14. I always say same sandbox, different toys, right. right? And that is true with Goetia. Uh, and to play well, you got to be able to identify the shift in value. That's, that's where I think the replayability is going to come in, is that with all of these variables injected into the game, it's a fun puzzle every time to try and decide what is the optimal move here.
1: Very cool, very cool. So that is Goisha. That's how we're going to decide to say it.
0: A Goisha, nine kings of Solomon. Yeah, that that sounds good to me. All right. This episode has been sponsored by the Ocean Liner Service. Having trouble producing enough food to get more workers? Has your population decided that reproduction is boring? You're just a simple investment of 10k away from our services shipping folks to your civilization for a life of whatever servitude you impose. Ocean Liner Services. A wonder without a proper name. All right, Scott Marvel Champions comes back out to the table. I was so close to buying it this past week. The Vault had it for like 30 bucks oh. and they had 20% off on Black Friday. I was like, I could get this for under 30 bucks and I just couldn't do it with packs coming up Uh, you've been talking marvel champions a lot lately this time because of what is this the mad titans revenge what do you got scott
1: yes yes marvel champions still is a game that draws me back over and over and over this is this is probably my magic with marvel champions mad titans revenge they release a big box every now and then and what they'll do is they'll be Two heroes and five villains, or five different parts of a campaign that they will put in to these big boxes. Each time, the heroes are so completely different and so themed to the way they should be from the comic books. The scenarios you play are so different different but they're still challenging i mean there are so many that i still haven't played i mean we're getting close to probably 30 heroes we have now probably 20 some villains that they have it's so much fun now in this one here mad titan's revenge you're going to be playing a lot of things against thanos and his black order the first scenario you play you're playing against ebony maw And he has these spells that come out constantly that are going to mess with you. Bah humbug. (laughs) If you remember from Avengers Infinity War, that was the one that was torturing Doctor Strange. He had them held in these spikes and all this kind of stuff. Very quiet, very conniving. Uh, He was their magic user, basically. Mm Mm-hmm. He has a lot of spells that come out at different times, and you have to time things because if you don't take him out quickly enough, those spells will go off and really mess up your plans. There will be things with Proxima Midnight and Outriders that come running out. You just get overwhelmed with everything, and the theme works so well in this game. The heroes that come in this from the Vision and Scarlet Witch show, uh, WandaVision, you have Spectrum. So a lot of people may remember her as Captain Marvel from way back when. But there was another character that they introduced in that, Monica Rambeau, who was Spectrum. She's able to change her body and take on different aspects of different light sources. Cool. So it's very interesting. So you can change things with her. Adam Warlock, who will be coming out in the next Guardians of the Galaxy movie. They have him in there. He's uber powerful. He's got all sorts of things he can play. But there's never any one certain time that you play this game that the heroes are so overpowered that they're going to wipe things out. It's a challenge each and every time you play this game. It's just so much fun getting new things. I just picked up a new pack now with War Machine. So you're constantly getting new characters each and every month. And they are just knocking it out of the park with this game. It is just really a tremendous time. If you love Marvel and you love card games, this is a great one to play solo as well as long with, as well as with other people. Yeah, have you been doing this one with Tommy or have you been soloing it? Both. Uh, we went through oh, cool. the Rise of the Red Skull campaign, which was very similar to this one. But mm-hmm. you're playing with Red Skull, Armin Zola, Crossbones, Absorbing Man, and and i can't remember what the last one was but see uh, now, now you're listing heroes that
0: i've never even heard of so I, I it begs the question is there so many i've seen the the little uh, what do you call that whenever there's like a display with a game and all the little things underneath mm-hmm. it the you know what i'm talking about, in, in in a store oh, like yeah, the end yeah, cap yeah, yeah. and they've got all those packs with all those heroes there's so many and you're always getting new ones you ever playing with your old
1: ones Yes, that's what makes this game fun because yeah, you're playing with the new hotness whenever it first comes out, but then you stop and you think, I wonder how Iron Man would take this because like I said, each and every hero plays completely different. So Iron Man, Mm -hmm. you play as Tony Stark, you get uh, a set hand of cards. So you have six cards. So like I've said before in past ones, your main card for your hero has their alter ego and their hero side so on your alter ego side you're tony stark you get six cards on your hero side you're iron man you get one card but you add one for each part of your suit of armor that you have so the whole time you're trying to find the armor and put that on him to expand your card drawing and you want to go back and figure out how would this work against thanos now i mean yeah you got everything to happen in Endgame, yeah, let's let's play Iron Man against Thanos. And then they also have all the different aspects you can play with, with justice or protection, aggression. Oh, why can't I remember the last indigestion. one? Indigestion. Leadership. Each one of those you can play differently. And it just it makes it a different game each and every time that you play this game.
0: So you have all this variability in the heroes that you're picking and how you're constructing their decks, but I assume that you can actually like change the scenario. So you have these characters from WandaVision in the new pack, for example. Can you take an old scenario from your your original base game and be like, well, I'm going to take uh, Vision up against my base game box scenario. Is that something you can do?
1: Yes, yes. That's another thing that they do that's very cool. One of the ones they started off with was Rhino in the base game, just to use as an Mm -hmm. example here. So you play against Rhino, he has a set deck that he plays with, but then you have these modular decks. So you could throw in the Masters of Evil with him and play with that and see how that goes. Or why don't you throw in Legions of Hydra instead this time? So Rhino's working with Hydra this time. Now, let's throw him in with a bunch of Badoon. So this is a galaxy spanning thing now. You can change this up, and it's just like you're looking at a comic. Like new comics now, I still have fun reading them, but there was just that sweet spot back in the 80s whenever you would like look at the cover and like, what the hell's going on in this one? I got to pick this up and read it. I think it's a fun game for anyone to play, but people who are fans of comics, this is a can't miss.
0: It'd be kind of neat to just run the numbers and be like, okay, we have 35 heroes, 26 baddies, this many scenarios, this many different ways to build the deck and you're playing with. I wonder how many combinations you could have for a unique game. It's It's got to be in the millions or billions.
1: You're under the impression that someone on Etsy has not already made up that Oh, thing. I'm
0: sure it's out. Th- have you found
1: it? Oh, yes. Yes. You can find it where you have a book where you open it up and you put in your hero. And if you're playing justice or leadership or protection or aggression, what difficulty you're playing with the villain, what modular set are you playing with? I mean, yes, it's easily up in the hundreds of thousands now.
0: You know, what's funny is we used to talk about listening to board game podcasts and how it's kind of like a commercial. And I hear an episode of somebody's show and I immediately am like, I need to buy these three games and then one of the ways that we were kind of, like, making that taper off, it's like, well, let's just do our own board board game podcast, and then we won't have to go buy. Man, we talked to John last week. <laughs> I, I re-downloaded Borderlands 2. I've been playing Borderlands 3. I am going to the vault today, and I'm going to pick up Marvel Champions. I know it's going to happen. It's going to be like Arkham Horror, or uh, uh, the, the Arkham Horror card game. It's going to sit on my shelf and shrink for a month. and I. Uh, I will.
1: Well, I I pretty much am assured that I will be taking some Marvel Champions with me to pack. So I will definitely show you how to play. Marvel Champions, Mad Titans Revenge. Great times with that one. Oh, wow. Have we fed them lately? Scott, the top 100
0: update begins with Falling Stars. Here's an odd one. The Isle of Cats. We just talked about it breaching the top 100. It's down two spots to number 98. More a result of some things uh, uh, pushing it down than it actually falling. Top 10 trends. Oh, the ship has been corrected. Ooh. (laughs) You remember Gloomhaven passed Twilight Imperium to claim the number five spot? Uh, Yeah, that's over now. Twilight Imperium (laughs) took... Took back uh, the number five spot. Gloomhaven, Jaws of the Lion. I wonder if it's already peaked. It went down from five to six. Interesting. New highest peaks. These games are higher on the list than they've ever been. Too many bones up to number 38. All right. The Lost Ruins of Arnak, number 41. Eclipse, second dawn for the galaxy, has eclipsed the top 50. Sitting at number 49. Happy birthdays. Anachrony has been in the top 100 for four years. Wow! Seven Wonders Duel, speaking of board game arena, we've been playing that yeah. one on there, has been in the top 100 for six years, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. An oldie but a goodie. I think it might get pushed out with Unfathomable coming out, but Battlestar Galactica,
1: 13 years. Wow, With hearing that, I mean, I'd love Battlestar Galactica, but I'm really looking forward to getting some plays in of Unfathomable here soon.
0: Speaking of looking forward to, I am looking forward to telling everyone about Factory 42, today's 8-Bit Breakdown. Scott, uh, you've been busy lately, so this one's going to be kind of like dog park. You be the host, and I'll talk about the game.
1: Ready for the walkthrough? Yes, let's go to Factory 42.
0: Designed by Timo Multimaki and released in 2021 by Dragon Dawn Productions, Factory 42 is a cutthroat, yet at times cooperative game set in the world of Zanziar, where two to five players take on the role of an overseer of a dwarven factory in a Marxist steampunk setting. The game takes about an hour and a half to play. In this game, by fulfilling government orders each round, players will score points, and at the end of six rounds, the player with the highest score wins. Now at its core, Factory 42 is a worker placement game that incorporates a robust market containing 11 different resources, from marble and coal to mushrooms and beer. At the start of the game, the resource board is placed with all the cubes of those resource types, then two of each are taken and dropped into a cube tower. The cubes that fall out get returned to the resource board. In this fashion, the game begins with some random resources stuck in the cube tower to potentially become available at a later point in the game. Know, however, that throughout the game, the cube tower's purpose is to have you caught up in red tape. What goes in might not necessarily come out. Throughout the game, as resources are added to the tower, some will get stuck, but those that fall out belong to the common pool, an area from which resources can be used by players. Let's briefly go over a round of play to get an idea of what's going on in Factory 42. At the start of each round, government orders, basically recipes of resources, will be made available for players to achieve. Plus, the market, which dictates the trade value of any given resource, will have a new card revealed. Last round, you may have needed two copper to trade for a steal, but this round it might take three. A new event is then revealed from the event deck, and its effects are applied. In the second part of a round, players will place their workers, then they'll be resolved in the third portion of the round. The resolution of workers is quite interesting in this game in that you begin with the first action space and you continue to resolve workers in order. For example, the loading action that players may have committed a worker to will always take place before the trading action. After all locations are completely resolved, end of round scoring occurs. Now remember those government orders? Each order has three different levels of completion, minimum, standard, and optimal. Each player scores points for orders which they've completed, but for each order that no one completed, players are going to suffer a penalty. So long as no players at 42 points, and so long as it was not the end of round 6, play will continue with the next round. At the end of round 6, however, or if someone reached 42 points before that point, we reach the end of the game, where players will receive additional points for remaining rosettes, extra resources, and more, and the high score will win the game. Now, earlier I described Factory 42 as a cutthroat, sometimes competitive game. That's because players are not only encouraged to, but in order to perform well, players must make trades and deals throughout the game to ensure that various orders are met. There are many times when a player might have the chance to distribute some resources to other players, and often you'll find yourself doling them out to the high bidder. But what you get in return is basically always going to be a future favor when your trade partner resolves their worker. This can and often does lead to a very tense player interaction where a backstab is right around the corner and a swindle is straight ahead. Now, as with any walkthrough, the goal is not to teach you the game, but rather we want to give you a sense of what's going on. I want to stress here that Factory 42 is a relatively complex worker placement game, not only in its introduction of heavy player interaction, but in the fact that there are about a dozen different areas that players can place their workers, including their own player board. We didn't touch on worker placement spots in this walkthrough, but know that primarily they're going to deal with players' abilities to produce and acquire resources, or upgrading one's ability to do so. So, is this game good? Should you add it to your collection? Let's dig a little deeper in the 8 bit breakdown of Factory 42.
1: All right, Patrick. Hey, thank you so much for giving us a walkthrough of Factory 42. Uh, now, this I did not get a chance to play. Uh, like we've said, I've been traveling and running around here like crazy with different jobs all over the place. But you got a chance to play this, and you're going to take us a walkthrough and let us know all the little details in our 8 bit breakdown of Factory 42. Are you yes all, set? sir? Oh, ready? All right. So, the art and components. What did you think about those? Okay, it starts with a gorgeous
0: cover box uh, with a dwarf on it in in the military looking uniform, and he's pointing. You're like, oh, we're in for a treat. What with the art. Uh, the art's pretty minimal though Uh, i like what is there namely that box cover and you get that dwarf on some of the cards but like the event cards have the dwarf on it it's the same image of the dwarf just a different title on each on each card so make no mistake this isn't a game that you buy because of the sweet art there's very little the components on the other hand Are pretty sweet. Let's start with a cube tower. So, adventurers, if you're not sure what a cube tower is, think of a dice tower. You know, you drop the dice in and they go down the little ramps and out the bottom they come. A cube tower is the same concept. The difference is the ledges are not slanted to let all of the cubes shuffle up and just come out at the bottom. No, there are ledges and holes and whatnot throughout the tower. So, if I drop 10 cubes into the top, some of them are going to get stuck in the tower. Maybe only seven or eight come out. Maybe all ten come out the bottom, but typically they don't. Some of them get stuck in the tower. Well, aren't they going to come out whenever I put more things in later? Yes, absolutely, and that's the point games that use this previously have been uh, shogun amerigo and a uh, shogun did it to uh, to resolve conflict so if, if we each have five cubes we put them in our hands shake them up drop them in the tower you had four come out i only had two you won that battle but you know what now i know for future reference oh i still got some guys they they ran away from that battle and they can get back in they use a cube tower in factory 42 now because of that, as you can imagine, you have a ton of cubes that represent resources. We got 11 different colors. Honestly, they're pretty easy to tell apart though. They have distinct colors and they have different sizes. So the most common resources are little cubes and then a medium-sized cube and then a large cube across the 11 colors. So they're they're actually pretty distinct. They have rail carts. The rail carts can house cubes. They're actually 3D punch out and assembled rail carts. The best part, though, is everybody's meeple, like everybody's uh, workers, they are Mm -hmm. laser cut meeples. Yeah, I'll I'll show you. I'll hold one up to the screen at some point. They, They look phenomenal. Good components, minimal art, though.
1: Okay. Well, hearing about the components and like you said, the laser cuts and the little carts that you have here. It's like you knew where we were going next. So the second (laughs) one is theme and immersion. Did you feel like you were in a Russian dwarven factory? Mm,
0: Kind of. of. Well, you're Marxist dwarves, uh, not necessarily Russian, but you're Marxist dwarves trying to fulfill government orders. And they hammer home that Marxist concept with the cube tower. That is what you expect to have available gets caught up in red tape. The cube Ooh. tower represents like you have the common pool at the bottom that everybody has to work with that's going to fill in the cart. So as as the production is creating these cubes, say that you have uh, 12 different cubes, you drop them in the tower and only only nine of them come out to the common pool. That's representing the governmental red tape. They did hammer it home there. Also, uh, they have subtle ways the players work together and negotiate. Uh, so, for example, you can fill up rail cars to get resources from that common pool. And you're typically gonna pick a number of resources. So it quickly turns into talking with each other about which ones to add, uh, where are they gonna go, and what'll you do for me if I add another copper, for example, because we need it in order to for me to fulfill a government order. Get that copper in there and I'll, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours got got to kind of work together when you ship the carts off to a player board you can ship them to any player board so again wheeling and dealing is is going to happen in this game in the worker placement spots you have uh you have various places where you can place your workers amongst them every little action segment on the board has a commissar spot which usually means okay i'm going to place the commissar here then if anybody else goes there, they have to bribe me. They've got to throw a resource my way. So it does have a lot of uh, resources being being pushed back and forth around the board. A little bit of working together and a lot of swindling to hammer home the, uh, we'll say, the scarcity that, we'll say, a Marxist government can create or has a reputation for creating. I'm treading, walking a fine line here.
1: All right. So – You've got all these things going on here. You're putting things on different players' boards. You're getting different resources to put out. Working with each other, working, wheeling and dealing and everything else. Sounds like there's a lot of stuff going on. Bit number three, complexity of Factory 42. Is this a complex game?
0: Yes, this is a complex game. There is a lot to learn here. This is a worker placement game, Scott, with about a dozen different action spaces on that main board that you can pick from, each one having multiple worker placement spots, plus you have your own player board. Furthermore, there's an adjusting market. So if I have a, if I have two lichen and I need a copper, the market is going to dictate what my lichen are worth and what the copper sells for. Or if I have two silver and I need coal, for example, anything that you're trying to trade is dictated by a market. When you set up the game, you've got an adjusting market. You put a bunch of cards in that spot. This round, here's the market. Here's all the trade values. Next round, you remove that card, and it unveils the one below it. Hey, look at that. The market just changed. This isn't a hard concept, but it's just another hurdle on the path to fully understanding the intricacies of the game. Truly, if we were to break it down, the, the round is as simple as four steps. you know, Drawing and replacing cards like the market, the events, mm-hmm. placing workers resolving the workers and then clean up in practice though it's gonna take a couple plays to grasp how to play well and that first playthrough is going to involve here's what spot one does here's what spot two does here's what three all the way up to number 12 now let's move on to your player board none of them are hard none of them are hard to understand but you do kind of have to know that Spot A works well if you're also doing spot D, and if you're going to do spot D, then you should be concentrating on spot H, and that takes a while to grasp. Definitely on the heavier side of mid-weight.
1: You said it's complex, but it's once you get used to it, it's very easy. So Mm -hmm. to get to that point where it's very easy, you have to go through a little thing called a rule book. So what did you think of the rule book? Well, this is where
0: things aren't very easy. Uh, the rulebook taught me the game just fine, but it was a practice of setting up, you know, my ritual, light the candles, set it up on the basement table, sit alone in the dark with a book and a board. And this game was definitely one of those. uh I, listeners, you do this sometimes. I'm sure you set up the game according to the rules and the game setup, and then you flip through to page one, page two, and you see where, how things interact. And then you start playing the game single hand. I'm going to play for myself and Scott, and you know, pretend uh, other gamer just so that I can see how the game functions before I try and teach it. And a lot of rule books have like the examples, the pictures, etc. There are basically zero pictures in this rulebook, and there are zero examples within. It teaches the rules, sure. It just doesn't hold your hand. Now, kudos to Dragon Dawn Productions. They do have a QR code on the back for any sort of rules updates. They have a small FAQ page, and they even have a page that's devoted to some strategy tips to help you get off your feet. Some people really like that. It was not a rulebook that I personally love that gives me examples and a lot of color and, you know, holds my hand, which I need.
1: (laughs) So once you went through the rule book and you learned it, then you're going to show somebody else how to play. What's the learning curve like for those people?
0: Yeah, well this this is an area where they're you know, like I said before, the game one's gonna be a learning game. It is a little bit of a struggle with Factory Forty Two, figuring out the inner workings of each game. Each worker placement spot is simple enough, as I said, but understanding that interconnectivity of the actions, I mean, Scott, that had me spinning a little bit, even just trying to figure it out myself. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I love that. <laughs> it's not a game that you're gonna play once and instantly have a solid plan for the next game. Games that do that tend to have a very short shelf life for me. I feel like I figured it out in two or three plays. This reminded me a tiny bit of a previous Dragon Dawn game that I talked about called Grey Eminence in that the rules Mm -hmm. present you with a tricky puzzle and then encouraged player interaction that's going to take the game to the next level.
1: The replayability and variability. It sounds like there's a ton of it in this game. A metric ton. I don't even know what that Uh-oh. means. <laughs> it starts with event cards, Scott.
0: you got six rounds in the game, and you're only going to see a handful of events from a big old deck of event cards. Now, we've we've seen that before. But you also have your government orders, the goals that you're striving to achieve each turn. So let's say we have a, a four-player game. We're going to have some number of government orders out at the beginning of each round. Now, the game wants each player to try and achieve all of the government orders. And for everyone that you don't achieve, uh, there's a minus point. But government orders that have been fulfilled at the end of the round, you're going to sweep them, get rid of them, and flip out new ones. So those government orders and the order that they come out, that's that's going to be variable every single game. Cubes coming out of the tower. Scott, when you set up the game, you take two of every cube and drop them in, and then everything that's in the common pool you put back on the resource board. So the game is going to start with some number of cubes in it. There's a magic cube, which is basically a wild. If two magic cubes are in that tower, that's going to present a a much easier early game than a game that has two copper, two coal Mm. in the tower. So you have some variability there. The market is constantly shifting. That's a ton of variables. And these aren't cheap variables either. These are variables that shape the game from play to play. There is a need to work together from time to time, or at least uh, we'll say you got to selfishly negotiate swindle. (laughs) That's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) In order to accomplish what you need, uh, be it some resources from a rail car or someone else to generate some steam so that you can use it. You have incentive to work together either in a friendly fashion or in bribing each other, but it gets even better than that. The game comes with the Elven Commissions and the Inventor's Guild expansions right out of the box. The game board... It's double-sided, so the base game plays on one side while the expansions dictate the use of the other. This side has spots on the board for Elven Embassy and the Inventor's Guild Worker Placement Spaces. Your player boards are even modified on their reverse sides to incorporate a space in which you can... Yeah, exactly. So talk about replay. It makes the game a little asymmetric between the players, especially with the, the Inventor's Guild. You actually create inventions that give you an ability or worker placement spot unique to you. Now, that's a ton of variables. That's going to make the game's puzzle different every time you play, sure. But, man, oh, man, you mix in some gamers and you start that wheeling and dealing, you got a game that can come off the shelf
1: regularly. Now, with all this that you've been talking about, it sounds like there would be very few of them. But still, are there downsides to this game?
0: Well first and foremost there is that that steep learning curve or, or it was steep for me this could be a downside for some folks that are looking to get something a little easier to get into but even for those that want a more complex game, the rule book while not bad, uh, like I said it, it didn't make the process any easier for me now components aside from the many many different colors of the cubes and you know all the great things that I said about the meeples, the cube tower, the game is predominantly brown and red. <laughs> I don't know if you have enough and you're looking at pictures, but it is brown and it is red. Now, this isn't a bother for me, but right now, you know, with all these new gamers coming in, we've listened to other reviews. What are the, Oh, it's so colorful, and oh, the pastels, and the, this is a, a bland look. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, and most importantly, Scott, this game can get mean. There is a car salesman style of bribes and shady deals that are non-binding. And I might say I'll do something next turn for you uh, if, if you do something for me this turn. But it's non-binding. And oftentimes the best play and the right play comes from backstabbing each other. <laughs> Which, again, I love it. Uh, all that. Let's not forget that the game itself, the game itself is fashioned to create roadblocks for you from the events to the shifting market to obviously and most impactfully that cube tower. I like a mean game. I can leave feelings in a game. You can backstab the hell out of me this game, and we'll be allies next game. No big deal. My buddy Ryan, I made the mistake of backstabbing him in Cosmic Encounter three (laughs) years ago. We cannot play a game without him instantly deciding that I am the enemy. (laughs) Right? If your group consists of folks like that, Factory 42 is not going to be for you. If you can live with a, a mean game, a swindly game, a backstabby game, if you look forward to that, uh, then this
1: won't be a downside. But it is definitely in So there. you've actually made the downside still sound like upsides to this game somehow.
0: You know what? Let's be honest. Downsides are always mm-hmm. going to be personal, right? For me, if a game is not interactive, I might look at that and say, you know what? That's a downside for my wife. That's an upside. So it's it's really hard to point out a downside unless you open up the box and it's covered in saliva. <laughs> it's really hard to, to point out a downside and be like, wow, what were they thinking?
1: <laughs> well, then this leads us into the final bit here. Who was this for and was it fun? It all comes full circle. Factory 42
0: is a mid to heavy worker placement game that forces players to find a way to work Together. It throws grief into your strategic equation at every turn, making it that much more satisfying when things work out. It encourages shady interaction and swindling to close the gaps that your strategy couldn't do on its own. And I like it. Now, who's this game for? That gets a little bit more. Interesting. All those things that I said before. Like, we've, we've heard the term multiple uh, multiplayer solitaire. This is a term used to describe a Euro game that has players playing the same game, but not doing a whole lot of interacting. A game that might come to mind would be, uh, for example, like Orléans, or uh, some suggest Wingspan. There's not a whole lot that I'm doing that impacts you. This is not that this is a euro game with direct interaction that is all but required and i think that for folks that like a puzzle game a worker placement game but they want to have some more depth by including the human element factory 42 is going to be an easy recommend
1: but it's not for everyone well that sounds quite interesting i'm anxious to give a get a play of this in at some point in time so uh... (laughs) packs there we go (laughs) So, yes. We're up to
0: 87 games to play.
1: (laughs) Factory 42 (laughs) sounds like a winner. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Hey, I hear the look back music. Yes. Still, I'm worried about these musicians. I don't know if we fed them yet.
0: Scott, one year ago today, we reviewed tapestry one that you recently in our last episode we were talking about the top 10 games that we reviewed in the past year you had tapestry ranked number one I think I had it at number three or four. Phenomenal game. A uh, quick theme and mechanic recap. Tapestry is a game that has four tracks going around the outside of the board, along with your own personal civilization and capital. mat. you have asymmetric player powers. Uh, you're moving up these tracks on the outside of the board, taking appropriate actions as you do so. Scott, do you see a future game day where you're bringing Tapestry back Absolutely. to the table? Absolutely.
1: Uh, I have it on my table right now, getting ready to play a solo game of it. Oh, yeah, sweet. it's it's one of those ones that you play it and right away, as soon as you're done, you're like, eh, what if I take that track instead of this one? Hey, let's set it up and try it again. Just so many wa- different ways to play this thing. So many different decisions to make. It's a great game. I mean, there's so much modularity put into this truly tremendous game that needs to be on the table a lot more often than it is
0: well we just got in the arts and architecture expansion jamie said we rarely get a game sent to yeah. us but uh, we talked with jamie in the side quest for arts and architecture he sent us uh the arts and architecture expansion and i can't wait to get to the table but there's just one catch what's that Jimmy loves tapestry, and he's been a big fan of the show. He's hooked us up with uh, with some people to talk with, and he said, hey, you should try and get Stegmaier on. He's the one that turned us on to arts and architecture, so I'm gifting it to Jimmy, and I haven't oh. seen him yet. And the caveat with gifting it to Jimmy is you got to play it with us. Yep.
1: There you go. You can go. have yeah. it.
0: I haven't seen him since. So maybe in January. I think he's going to be at uh, at Ruckus Cafe for our uh, for our meetup. More information to come. But I think he's coming, and uh, we'll get tapestry with arts and architecture to the table. So we absolutely see tapestry making it back to the table. Scott, if you didn't own this, g- well, this is silly. If you didn't own tapestry, would you I buy just it? I just it. bought so it.
1: Yes, yes, and <laughs> yes. to Everything above. Would
0: you recommend
1: it? Oh, definitely, definitely recommend it. Just because, like I said, there's so much variability built into this game, there's never going to be a same game that you play twice.
0: This is about the easiest look back we're going to have all year long, isn't it? (laughs) Probably, but then, hey, that
1: shows the quality of the game.
2: The United States is a land of opportunity. Every year, millions of immigrants come to the United States in hopes for a better life for their family. My father was one of those immigrants. Many years ago, my father came to the United States after spending all of his childhood as a ranchero. All through my childhood, I would hear stories of him and his friends' antics. Um, They would get into all sorts of crazy adventures on the farm they lived on, and I would hear also great stories of the treks they would embark on in the mountains with their donkeys and horses. Farm life is hard, and anyone who says otherwise is probably out of touch with reality. One farm animal that has always fascinated me is the sheep. These grazing beasts require large fields to roam in order for them to get their nourishment. But since they are pretty helpless creatures by themselves, they require shepherds to take care of them. Now, when I think of shepherds, usually, I think of the Middle East and South American cultures where that way of life is still very relevant. But, as I was playing the game I'm going to be talking about today, I got to wondering how many shepherds were actually in the United States. Turns out, there are over 1,500 active shepherds working in the United States today most of these being immigrants, like my father. They are working hard to provide better incomes for their families back home in countries like Mexico, Chile, or Peru. Many of these people spend decades away from the home to pay for their families to get through college, build a better home, or start a new business. Often, these shepherds spend decades away from their home to retire and enjoy life in their home countries after decades of being away. Now, why am I talking about sheep and shepherds? Well. Patrick, Scott, and Adventurers, I will tell you. Because today, we will be looking at the 2-4 to four player enclosure game that comes in at the BGG rank of 1,534. That is the game Battlesheep, released in 2010 and designed by Francisco Roda and published by Blue Orange Games. A little disclaimer before I begin, my overview today on the game will come strictly from the board game arena implementation of this game. In the game of Battlesheep, players take responsibility of a flock of 16 sheep, with the goal to have the most sheep on the board at the end of the game. In the first phase of the game, players take turns setting up a modular board that is comprised of various hex spaces. After this, players will then place all 16 sheep tokens in one stack on the board. On a player's turn, they will take their stack of sheep and split it in any way they want, with the only condition being that they have to leave at least one sheep in the space that that stack is currently occupying. After determining how they would like to split, players will then move that part of their stack in a straight line to the other end of any part of the board they want, only stopping if they reach the edge of the board, an empty space within the board, or another stack of sheep. And that's it! Players will go back and forth splitting stacks and trying to get as many sheep tokens spread across the board. Play continues until players cannot move any more sheep. Players will then count how many sheep tokens they have on the board. The player with the most sheep on the board wins! In case of a tie, the player with the largest group of sheep wins the game. When it comes to themes and mechanisms, I really like the theme in this game. I don't necessarily think that the theme is the most prevalent. This is obviously a very mechanics-forward game. Moving the giant stacks to other ends of the board could easily just be a themeless game where you have, you know, red chips and blue chips and black chips all across the board and you're just taking hex pieces and doing it that way. But... Adding the theme of sheep and trying to get the sheeps in groups and trying to make the largest group and also keeping groups together really pairs well and gives the game a little bit of an extra edge for me. Um, I could enjoy this game without the theme, but I think having the sheep there really helps. Plus, I will say the name Battlesheep is super punny and absolutely fantastic. So kudos to Francisco for doing it that way. In the physical representation of the game, which I only have the opportunity to look at through Board Game Geek's pictures they show on it, it looks to be cardboard and little plastic tokens with the sheep on it. The artwork is very nice on it, and I enjoy the cutesy little artwork they have of the different sheeps, and the front cover seems to be pretty charming as well. But the uh, Board Game area implementation is good. It's pretty easy to understand. It shows you exactly how to place the hex boards, what they're going to look like. It shows you the stack of sheep how many are on each stack, so you don't have to keep counting them. It's easy to determine where you're going to move. You just click on your stack, and it shows you, hey, here's the here are the spaces you can send a stack for, and then you can click on that space, and then you can just click back and forth and tell Board Game Arena how many of that sheep you want to go forward. So really nice, really well implemented, so well done, BGA. Scalability. I've had the only the opportunity to play it many times now on two-player mode on board game arena just randomly pairs you with people and most of the time it's just gonna play you with two people because not many people are playing this game in ratio to how many people are on board game arena at a time playing a two-player seems okay it does run into the problem of you kind of know when you've lost because you know you make one wrong move it has the problem that lots of games of this nature have where if you make one wrong move you sort of concede the game I could see this game really singing, though, at four players, and most people in the Board Game Arena and Board Game Geek community think so, too. I think the idea of being able to have four players and four shepherds, if you will, on the board moving their stacks around would provide an extra cool and extra, you know, strategic dynamic to this game, providing not only a strategic experience, but also a tactical experience based on where characters split their sheep and also end their sheep split on different areas of the board. As far as the weight, this is a super, super lightweight game. Like, I can probably teach this game in two minutes or less. If you are looking for, and i I'd probably say a welcoming game to the hobby, the idea of enclosure, this is a really great start. It has an approachable theme of just moving sheep around, you get to have fun setting up your own board, it's really good. But what really provides this game the strategic depth that I like, though, is that modular board. You know, the gameplay after the board, setting up the board is really easy, move your sheep around. But you can have a lot of fun setting up strange, tactical, and whimsy boards. You can have giant spaces in the middle. You can have just one long streak of different sheep around. It really provides an extra layer of depth and variability to the game, which I really love. In fact, that was probably my favorite part of the game was setting up the board and seeing, okay, what am I going to be dealing with this time? What am I going to be handling? Is there gaps anywhere they need to watch out for? Are there stretches of land that I need to avoid in order to avoid being caught? And it's something that I look forward to in the game because it provides a different gameplay experience each time. And this could be a way for you to introduce people to games like Go, or perhaps even things like Calico. Those little heavier, thinkier games in a very approachable way. I like it. I really like the board game arena implementation of this game. And I think it is a light enough experience to where I wouldn't mind having in my collection. But wow, playing it on board game arena is absolutely fantastic. Why is this lost loot? For me, this game is the highest game i reviewed so far in the high, in the pretty much the low 1000s, the 1500s area. And I was a little hesitant to actually introduce this game in this segment at first because it was a little higher than I like, but it came out in 2010, almost 12 years ago. And in board game time, especially nowadays, that is like a million years ago because there's so much coming out. The market is so saturated that simple games like these get lost. This game was a Spiel des Jahres recommended game. Which, you know, is no small feat. It was a Mensa Select game as well. And there are lots of games like that. Lots of good, solid games that get recognized by these great committees. And they get forgotten, though, because they just didn't win. And that's a shame. Lots of people kind of brush aside. They want the newest, the greatest thing. The, The brand shiny new Kickstarter. The game that won the Spiel des Jahres in the year. But lots of these other games just kind of get brushed to the side. And for me, that's sad. Because being on that list is saying, oh, this is a great game that everyone needs to try. And that's what I think Battlesheep is. Especially if you're going to try it on BGA, or if you find it at your thrift store, or if you find a copy, a secondhand copy just somewhere, give this a try. It's fun, it's light. You can introduce it to a six-year-old and they'll pick it up. Well, Adventurers, that's going to do for today. Again, that was Battlesheep. Designed by Francisco Roda and produced by Blue Orange Games. Now, as we approach into the new year... Which you know, by the time this episode releases, probably in the middle of December, and you won't hear from me again until the new year, more than likely. I want to make a promise to you that I am going to try to level up. Hopefully, you don't mind me doing this, Patrick and Scott. I am going to try to delve deeper and deeper into the recesses of the board game underworld. I'm going to try to find games that hopefully are lost loot you know, that's that's the whole shtick of the show, right? I want to try to find games that maybe are in the higher 10,000s, games that have been lost into the wheels of time, independently produced games, things of that nature. Hopefully, I can start by getting some games that are maybe in the high 5,000s, and then slowly work my way down to 10,000s as I dive deeper and deeper. But, I'm going to ask for your guys' help, if you don't mind. We're all about, on this show, you know, you guys participating, you guys being able to give us suggestions, giving your thoughts. If you guys have some lost loot that you think deserves more attention, feel free to reach out to me. I'm on boardgamegeek.com at pitboss3. Send me a little message, you know, an email, whatever, whatever they call it on there, with some games you think might deserve some attention. I'm more than willing to try to find it and see how it looks. Again, this is a show where your opinion matters, and I'm willing to have that opinion in my segment as well. And remember, keep your campfires warm and your swords at hand, because you never know when well, you might have a chance to level up.
1: Hey, thanks a lot, Josh, for today's Lost Loot, Battlesheet. It's one I haven't played, but it looks like it can be one of those fun little games that is a great way. My big thing right now is introducing my nephews to different games. This sounds like it'd be a definite winner for that type of game.
0: Yeah, I got an abstract game here, too. Plays in 15 minutes or less, and you're not kidding with nephews. I think the box says, what, age seven and up? Simple as uh, moving your stack of tiles along the board. Uh, You know what? I would give this a go. Yeah,
1: it it could be. uh, Sometimes, a lot of times, even though it's covered with like little cute sheep and farm animals, a lot of times abstract games end up being a lot more strategic than you give them credit for. That can be had for like 10 bucks, and, and those are some of the best games that you just keep packed in your bag for every game night that you go to. Well,
0: you never know when you're going to find some lost loot, huh?
1: You never do. Never do at all. So thanks again, Josh.
0: Well, Scott, we talked a bit about teaching games recently, and I mentioned briefly that I don't typically win when I teach a group because I'm concentrating on other players learning the game and them having a fun experience. Fast forward to Thanksgiving weekend. I found myself watching Moneyball.
1: You ever watch Moneyball? I've watched it once. I enjoyed it, but I've never revisited it. So for
0: those that are not familiar, Moneyball, uh, it's Brad Pitt, and it has uh, oh who's the— kid. Uh, Jonah Hill. That's it. Jonah Hill. Brad Pitt. Jonah Hill. They play Billy Bean and uh, uh, Peter Peter Brand, I think it is. Billy Bean was the manager of the Oakland A's, and he was tasked with putting together a, a solid team, a competitive team. And the problem is, and we know this all too well here in Pittsburgh, the Oakland A's are a small market baseball team. They don't have the money to compete, so he had to find a way to field a competitive team team and this peter guy was looking at the stats of baseball this guy gets on base this guy gets on base
1: he's a defensive liability and i question whether the bat speed's is still there his legs are gone Grady, we'll be lucky to get 60 games out of him why do you like him
0: because he gets on base i started to draw that correlation of all things from Moneyball to gaming making plays with your brain instead of your gut and calculating decisions at the table rather than going with what feels good. A lot of what they what they were saying in Moneyball was like, oh we gotta bring this guy in. He looks good. He looks good. And there's a whole lot of thinking with your gut and going with, you know, oh what's what's gonna be flashy. But then this Peter guy says, nope, we're gonna look at the numbers. This is the tactically best thing to do. This is the the tactically optimal thing to do. And I thought, man, it would be kind of neat to start playing board games with that what's tactically optimal so we made a post on board game geek asking three questions what exactly does it mean to play optimally what gets in the way of playing optimally and how much does it even matter to do so scott what do you think what does it mean to play optimally your opinions we'll get to some community responses here
1: i think it's looking at the goal, and trying to get there in the most efficient way possible. Mm -hmm. So that would be not taking side quests during a game, not looking at, well, I've never done this before. I'm going to go do this this time. I'm going to go this direction this time. Mm -hmm. It's knowing what works and getting things done in the least amount of time possible. So you want to get a win condition as quickly as possible. What do you think? Much of what you said,
0: a lot of it, uh, I relate back to Magic the Gathering. They had uh, Timmy, Johnny, and Spike, which are three different player styles. Timmy wants to play the big creatures. Spike just wants to win. Spike shows up at the tournament. He's a shark. He's the guy that just wants to win. Johnny wants to do something flashy, something smart. Johnny still wants to win, but Johnny wants to do it in style. And I know in Magic the Gathering, I was always a Johnny. Now, I I could turn on spike mode for a tournament, but I still want it to be unique in some way. Playing optimally, I think, is setting aside what's flashy, what might be the most fun thing,
1: and going for what is the most effective thing. Playing yes. optimally. What gets in the way of that? Well, I think the biggest thing that gets in the way is whenever you're the person bringing the game and teaching people how to play Because I know myself, I always feel that I need to make sure that the players have a good time.
0: Mm, Absolutely. I don't
1: want them to sit there and feel like they're slogging through this game that I may love, that they hate, and I'm making them take their time that they could be doing something else and not having an enjoyable time. That's
0: priority number one for the teacher.
1: Yes. So you're busy doing that to make it enjoyable, answer the questions, watching what everyone else is doing you're somewhat putting your optimal move to the side and not really giving yourself the chance to think things through and make the most optimal play that you can.
0: Yeah. Sometimes you'll play a game and on any given turn, it takes 30 seconds or a minute or two minutes even to kind of map out what you're going to do or what actions you're going to take. So you're going around the table and kind of like guiding a beginner. Okay. Now look, here's if you do it this way, this could happen. Or if you do it that way, that could happen. So by all means, make your decision. And this is for a, a brand new teach, obviously on you know round four, round five, you're not still going to be uh, patronizing you know, the, the new player at the table. But by the time it becomes your turn, you just spend all this time talking and, and making sure that everybody understands what they're doing. That it's like, OK, I'm not going to sit here in silence and have everyone start breaking out their phones so that I can try and calculate. Furthermore, right. you ever find that you love a game? And you teach it to people, and you start, you turn on that spike mode, you turn on that optimal play mode, and you crush people. They're like, oh, that that game was all right. Man, (laughs) did I just turn them off to a game that I love because I was more focused on world domination mm. <laughs> so I, I guess question number three how much does it matter to play optimally now we're not talking going to vegas next year for the world board gaming championships but uh, you're just uh, hanging out it's game day you got a few hours and somebody breaks out uh i don't know mari
1: posts us how much does it matter to you to be playing optimally i want to play at least optimal enough to come in maybe second, third at very most. Mm -hmm. I don't want to lose a game to all my friends that I go on about. I love this game. This is the greatest game ever. So I want to try and make at least coming in close. If I win, hey, that's great. But I think that if you come in second or third, it just shows that you're trying to make sure that everyone is having a good time playing.
0: You're a pack rat. You want to be running in the middle of the pack.
1: (laughs) I I'd like to be running ahead of everything, but it's one of those things that just gets in my mind if I beat everyone, they're just gonna be like, Oh, Scott likes games, he's just gonna win it every time. You're still looking at it from that teacher perspective. Exactly. Yes. What if I taught the game?
0: What if it's uh you, me, Tom and Jason, we're hanging out at the shop. First time playing a game, I I've played it once just to teach it to everyone. Mm-hmm. Does it matter? I mean, obviously it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. There are real-world problems. Oh, yeah. It obviously doesn't matter <laughs> to anyone if they win a board game. But we are playing games. I never turned on a video game and thought, I'm going to play three levels, and when I die, turn it off. No, you, you play games to win games. Uh, I think right. it was Reiner. I don't want to credit Canizia if it wasn't a Kinesia. Somebody very important in board games. I read this quote saying, the aim of the game is to win. Winning is not important. But the aim of the game is that captures all the thoughts because you tell someone, oh, it's important to try and win. And they inevitably say, no, no, it's important to try and have fun. Part of the fun is you know, everybody needs to be right. striving for
1: the same goal. That's what makes it
0: fun. I thought that was profound. Does it matter to you? to Are you playing games to win?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you want to see your meeple or your marker at the head of the track. Mm-hmm. You want to be ahead of everyone else there. You want to have that feeling of victory. That is a great thing, a great moral boost that makes your day. That's a, a big emotional rush that you get. So, yeah. Maybe a good way to sum it up would be it matters
0: to win, but your satisfaction isn't derived from whether or not you won. Very wisely put. Hmm. Scott, when we posted this, we got a bunch of responses, and I wanted to pull one from Philip. What does it mean to play optimally? Philip says, to have fun with my friends and try to win, but not at the expense of taking ages or annoying my gaming partners too much. <laughs> I thought, well, that, <laughs> that's a very important caveat. Number two What gets in the way for Philip? He says, I'm usually the teacher, the owner, much like what we said. He feels like Mm -hmm. he can get taken out of the moment, get out of that immersion if he's worried about how other folks are playing. And is it important? He said, it's important and it matters as to what's the point of the experience of playing the game if it's not enjoyable. So he he definitely factors in the variable of, is this game enjoyable still if I'm playing optimally? And it sounds like Philip's of the type where, if playing optimally means that it removes the fun from the game, he's not for it. And I can Mm -hmm. see that.
1: Yeah. And uh, just looking down a little bit further, Edward B. just put everything together Mm -hmm. into one answer. And this one, once again, I think it falls into the same category. You can't talk about playing optimally or not and not talk about analysis paralysis. For me, at least, it is the need to try to play optimally that causes AP. So I have needed to accept that I cannot play optimally Because one must not take away from other people's fun. That's something with me. I want to make sure that other people are having fun playing a game that I enjoy. Mm -hmm. So I will not play up to my ability just in order to make sure that everyone is having fun.
0: Maybe that's one of the biggest roadblocks to playing optimally is not wanting to be that guy that when it's your turn, you know, you're thinking and you're actively in the game. But other people are going. Oh, wait, whose turn is it? And you mm-hmm. know that that means, oh, crap, I'm taking way too long. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to put in one more that came from Pat. Pat says, I play to socialize and kick it with my friends. Having a good time trumps all. And quite frankly, at the end of the day, that's that's a fact. With This is a hobby. This is gaming. Yes. It's the only thing I care about. Winning or losing is irrelevant as long as I'm not making a complete fool of myself. So to answer your <laughs> questions, Scott says, number one, to play optimally, my optimal play includes not making head slapping blunders and not annoying myself or the other players. So optimal play for Pat is not winning the game, being the most efficient. It's not screwing up. I thought, you know what, that's kind of nice. We're getting the casual side of things, the, the I'm more in for the interaction side of things. For number two, what gets in the way? He says any hyper-competitive player. I don't have time for win-at-all-cost AP time wasters who complain if they lose. Jeez, Pat, you're getting aggressive here. Also, people who lose their mind over a mistaught rule that results in them losing in the end, except as a fact of doing business with humans and move on. We're all here to have fun, and if you're not, you won't be welcome much longer. People like this make me want to burn through the game as quickly as possible and get them out ASAP, even if it means I have to make really crummy plays. So again, Pat hammering home the, look, fun is number one here. Does playing optimally really matter? Pat says it matters immensely. More than the game choice, actual gameplay, winning or losing, everything. If I'm not having fun, I will start to look for a new avenue to have fun. Life's too short to be annoyed at something I do with my limited leisure time. Well spoken, Pat. And I I was kind of hoping we would get somebody who would take an angle that was not the Spike. Sounds like Pat is more the the Timmy in that Timmy-Johnny-Spike
1: analogy. Well, it's it's rather funny because he's talking pretty much dead on of my last experience playing Dinosaur Island, where the one person got so salty about not winning and messing up a couple things that he did, like turn two or something, that by the end of it, I was so sick and tired of hearing about it. I was just like, all right, the game's over. We're already on another game. Keep quiet. In the grand scheme of things, this is not going to greatly impact your life this is something to take you out of your normal everyday life give you some entertainment and let you relax
0: well thank you to those that answered the poll and gave us some thoughts their ideas of what it means to play optimally adventures if you're driving in the car listen to this show think about this throughout the day what does it mean to play optimally do you play optimally when you play Is it more fun when you do so? And does it even matter if you win so long as you're playing your
1: best? Good thoughts, Scott. Yes, they are. And thank you once again to everyone. It's so important to hear other ideas and other viewpoints that we may not have even thought of. I need to ask you a question here. Sure. What's going on at Rook's Point and why is there a clash happening there?
0: It's time for Adventures on the Horizon. Coming to Kickstarter soon from Mike Greenlees, we've got a a tentative date for launch of January 10th. Clash at Rooks Point. We've got a two to four player card game that takes about 10 to 15 minutes per game.
1: All right. So uh, we've got a card game, 10 to 15 minutes to play. What are you going to do in this game? What makes this stand out? Uh, Well, in a game of clash at rook's
0: point players are each going to choose a faction of three characters and their three characters are all going to have their own abilities or triggers that are going to differ not only from each other but from the other factions characters as well the goal here is to be the last one standing so you know it's kind of like a like a dogfight amongst the characters that is your three characters have their own hit points they'll be attacking opponents characters and try and knock them out. And how we're doing this is through the use of, obviously, cards. Now in the prototype that Mike sent us, each player receives a deck of 25 cards that is identical to everyone else's. For the intent of a prototype and for a fully fleshed out game, this worked just fine. Now, at the start of a game, each player is going to have a hand of four, and on your turn, you get to take two actions. Among them, you can use a special ability of any of your characters, you can play a card from your hand, or you can choose to attack a specific character belonging to an opponent. And when you do so, the attacker and the defender have the chance to play cards from their hand to modify the value of their characters. If the attacker's final value is higher than the defender, then the defending character takes a hit. This is simple. It's like tapping a card in Magic. You rotate the card 90 degrees, and if mm. a character's taken a couple damage, they find themselves rotated 180 degrees or upside down, then one more hit will kill them. All right. Interestingly, you're going to draw up to your full hand size of four at the beginning of every turn. This means that while you don't have to be quite so conservative about playing cards, you do still have to consider that you need to use cards defensively after your turn. If you should run out of cards in your deck, you just shuffle up and you keep going. No
1: penalty. And as I said, last person standing wins the game. With the cards that you're playing, I'm sure that they do more than just modify combat. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's not a whole bunch of variations of giant growth. Boy, I'm on with the magic analogies today. Yes, you are. Uh, (laughs) What's kind of cool, though, is that uh, while a lot of the cards, most of them even, have their own ability, every card has a combat value. So it's kind of a multi-use of these cards where you have to decide, am I going to use this for the combat value or am I going to use it for its
1: ability? So, yes, you do have variations uh, amongst the cards. So it's another card game coming out. We've seen a lot of them. But what did you like that stood out with this one?
0: Over Classic Rooks Point, I like the asymmetric faction abilities that you get from this start. And the designer has cards interact with various wound statuses and such. Uh, He played around a little bit with that. I had a guy in one game, he got more powerful as the other characters. I have three characters down. One of them says the combat value is a plus one if you only have two dudes. The combat value is a plus two if it's the last character that you have. So it actually gained power as the game went on. I'll just point out that the art, uh, you said it already, you were looking at pictures, you said it looks good. Mm -hmm. It does. You can tell from the early BGG page and from what I could find, uh, the art's just fantastic. Mike seems to have put a lot of priority in fleshing out the world of Clash at Rook's Point. Very
1: nice. Now, are there any reservations or things you'd like to see that you didn't see initially with this game?
0: First of all, I like this type of game at two players when -hmm. you're battling back and forth, and quite frankly... Card games that play best at two players, it's extraordinarily difficult bit of lightning to catch in your bottle. So the standard has to be set very high. We talked with previous card game designers, and one of which that we did back in February, I don't think it funded, and it was a phenomenal little game. But you're going up against Magic the Gathering. You're mm-hmm. going up against Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! Clash at Rook's Point for me, it was a tad simple for my tastes. No, I, I know I played competitive Magic, blah blah blah. The primary game mechanism at play here is a combination of action selection and card management. The action selection portion I thought was well done and that the vast majority of cards have those two uses. Use it for the card or use it for the combat value. The card management system is actually a little bit deeper than I was initially expecting. What I mean by that is like in Magic, you have to manage your cards. There's times where you're going to hold one back because you only get to draw one per turn. Mm -hmm. When players get to refill their hands every turn then the benefit of holding cards in your hand kind of dwindles. Like, well, I'll just use it. Get this power. Get this benefit because I'll get to replace it on my next turn. It removes that strategic part of the game. It wasn't quite so profound in Clash Rook's point. Sometimes you might be able to use a card in combat and not worry about losing it because it's going to be replaced on your next turn, of course. But sometimes it can be strategic to lose the combat. Use the card for its own ability on your own turn, especially if the Lost Combat card provides synergy with one of your characters. It's a game that is not as deep as a Magic the Gathering, a Pokemon, Mm -hmm. a Yu-Gi-Oh, but I don't think that it pretends to be.
1: Yeah, I see that the time there, it really surprised me whenever they say five to 15 minutes. So it seems like a rather quick game, something that you can pick up, play in between games or something like that. Now, the big thing is, are you backing it or who would be the person who would want to back this game?
0: Oh, you asked me if I'm putting my money where the mouth is. <laughs> That's tough. Uh, okay, I'm going to keep a close eye on the campaign to see what the options are. Mike messaged me. He said that he's hoping that the sell price will be like 16 bucks. Oh, wow. Adventures, spoiler alert, when we talk about upcoming games, when we talk about newly released games, I think every time except for one, we don't get a copy of the game. I have this copy of the game. I had to pass it on to some dude in Massachusetts. That's how it works. You get a copy of the game, you review it, you do your thing, you take your pictures, and then you ship it off to the next guy so that the person creating the game doesn't have to spend a billion dollars sending a bunch of reviewers a, a copy of it. $16? bucks. i will probably back a copy because it's compact. I can just throw it down anytime I want to try something different. Right. I would like to see a ton of additional cards to work with. Maybe an add-on for some more factions. Uh, at the end of the day, though, we're talking 16 bucks for some great artwork on an easy-to-learn, yet honestly strategic game. I will likely be backing it, but hey, at the end of the day, we can't back everything that comes our way. We didn't get it for free. I'll be keeping an eye on it. I'm going to see how this develops as the campaign uh, launches
1: and progresses. Very cool. So this is Clash at Rook's Point. Well, it comes to the end of the show and time for us to go back and take a look how we leveled up during the last time since we talked to you. So Patrick, how did you level up since last time we were together? Keeping it board game focused. This is a
0: huge one. This got this is this is mind blowing. This is something that's only happened
1: like three times ever. Um, pirates won the uh, World Series. Why you got it? Why you got a rip on the Pirates? <laughs>
0: my wife bought a board what, game. Why? Yeah, I get this board game sized box in the mail. I was like, oh, I wonder what. To- to my wife, what? <laughs> she bought a game called the What Not Cabinet. Dude, art by Beth Sobel. Cool. Guess who did the solo mode on the What Not Cabinet? Is our buddy Keith Mateka. Oh, wow! Who we uh, we talked with from Thunderworks Games? He uh, he helped produce. Uh, what did they publish? Cape May. We're gonna be seeing him this coming week at PAX. Uh, Keith did the solo mode. It's so funny. We're playing the game, and I was like, "Huh?" We talked to that guy. <laughs> She's like, really? <laughs> she got the chance to play it at our meetup at the, uh, oh, not the vault, it, when we were at Black Lotus Pizza. Your buddy Chris broke it out and hosted a game. She had the chance to play it, loved it, and uh, we've been playing the whatnot cabinet. So maybe I'll uh, explain what that is next episode.
1: But here we are at the end of this one, and I want to know, Scott, how did you level up? Well, with me leveling up, this would be that I auditioned for a play and wasn't one of those times whenever someone said, hey, we need somebody, Uh, are you free? So I auditioned, got a part for it, and realized it was a much bigger part than I expected. So it's exciting, and it's good to be back on stage again. Looking forward to it. It's a nice little comedy. Comedies I love to do. They're so much fun. Really looking forward to this one coming together and just excited to be on stage once again.
0: You always got something cool going on.
1: (laughs) And hey, happy holidays, adventurers. I make the very most of this year, and we look forward to another episode right before the end of 2021. See you, Scott. See you later, Patrick. Thank you
0: so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhaynesmusic.com. And remember... You can spend another night on the sofa or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.